You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I would like to begin by calling in the spirits to join us here today. So I call out first to the ancestors, to all of those who have gone before us, who lived well and died well and bring to us all that is good and true and beautiful in our ancestral lines. I call out to those who carry the legacy that can help us to learn from those who have gone before us. I call out to those who remember that we might learn how to do things differently, that we might understand where we must heal, where we must change, where we must innovate, and where we must draw the traditions forward. I call out to these ancestors to be with us here today to gather around and to help us, to help us, the living, do what we are called to do in our time. So with these ancestors gathered around, I give thanks for their presence, and I invite each one of us to allow our focus to go within and to move from our head to our heart and drop further down from our heart to our bellies, to drop down from our bellies down through all the layers of the earth into the very center of the earth and to take this moment to give gratitude for this day. Extend to the earth a heartfelt thanks for the fact that you are alive, for the wonder and the beauty and the diversity in this day. Thanks for all the trials and tribulations that will one day be looked back on as great gifts. We give thanks to the earth for all that has been in our lives that has brought us to this moment, for all that is and all that will be. And we give thanks to the earth for the awe and the wonder in the miracle of life. So we give thanks to the earth for the wonder of her dreaming and we draw this energy up, up into our being, drawing ourselves replenishment and restoration, rejuvenation, all of those energies that we feel when we find a bubbling, clear spring of water on a hot, hot hike on a long, long day. So we call the energies of the earth up into ourselves, into our day, and into these proceedings. And in this way, we draw in all the wisdom of manifestation that we might understand how to be here in form in a good way. And we draw these these energies into our body and call out to ourselves to find grounding, to find hearth and home and place and belonging, to get a sense of where we stand, that we might open our hearts to this day. We give thanks to the earth for connection and for interconnection and ultimately for oneness and the great web of life. May we have a moment today where we feel ourselves in that web and from that place come into right relationship with ourselves, right relationship with others, right relationship with our environment and right relationship with the invisible world. We call out to the earth with great gratitude as we draw her energy up, up into our bellies, from our bellies to our hearts and our hearts to our minds. And we draw the energy of the earth into ourselves that we might have what we need to rise up, rise up through the sky and whatever weather it holds for you on this day. 
rising out through the atmosphere and up into the cosmos, allowing yourself to caress and be caressed by all the heavenly bodies. And reach up, up into the cosmos to the highest power of the universe and by whatever name you know that power, connect with that power and draw it down. Drawing that energy down into yourself, into your day, into these proceedings. And in this way, we call in the energy of blessings. We call in the energy of protection. We call in the energy of generosity, benevolence, devotion. We call these energies in so that we might find the mentors and the champions in our life, the inspiration and the innovation and the creativity. Then we might find that fire within ourselves that guides us. So we draw this energy from above down into our heads, our hearts, and our bellies, and we take that moment as we send that energy down to the center of the earth to feel the great meeting of heaven and earth within ourselves, to feel the big love. And into the energy of the big love, we call out to the spirit of the heart to be here now and to open as the great crucible of transformation that it is designed uniquely to be. And we call up the fiery passions of the belly and call down the crystal clarity of the mind into the heart and let them dance there in that dance that gives birth to that third energy that you are here to know, which is the energy of your soul's true purpose. And may you find in that very same heart the courage to do something large or small in this day to bring that soul's purpose into manifestation. So we give thanks to the heart. We give thanks to the earth and the sky and the ancestors that have gathered round. We give thanks to the spirits of the land, large and small, and to our own helping spirits. We give gratitude for all those who have gathered with us here today. And I give thanks to those of you who have offered your dollars, rubles, euros, etc., to help me to keep this show on the air. And I give thanks to Indrik and Pierre, to Barbara and David, and all of the listeners who have donated to the show since we were last on the air. If this show is meaningful to you in any way, if it moves you in the heart to inspiration or absolute frustration, I ask you to acknowledge that you have been moved in the heart and to allow the motivation of the heart to move you into action. And I ask you to do something to help the show to grow strong. You can go to whyshamanismnow.com, click on the support button and donate any amount, large or small. Every single bit goes directly to keeping the show on the air and free to those who have access to the internet. And do all of the other many things that you are doing to help the show to grow strong with your questions, with your show ideas, but most importantly, with the way that you take what you are learning into your life and make it real in some way, that you challenge each other to grow, to love, and to share in your relationship, not only with the physical world, but with the invisible world and the environment around us. So I thank you all for helping me to make the show alive and vital. I thank those of you who have donated, and I thank those of you who offer in so many ways to keep the show alive. We give thanks to the Society of Shamanic Practitioners for their support. This is um, yet another uh, show in their interview series, and we give thanks to them for their support. You can find them at shamansociety.org. And so without further ado, I'd like to thank my guest today, Alex Stark. Thank you, Alex, for being with us today. Of course, my pleasure, Christina. Good to be here. So for those of you who don't know, Alex is an internationally recognized consultant, advisor, teacher um, on issues of creativity, efficiency, design, and healing. He is a practitioner of feng shui and European geomancy. He advises on issues of design, placement for residential, commercial, institutional, and industrial facilities, urban settlements, healthcare facilities, and on issues of institutional and personal transformation. 
He has received a design citation for his feng shui work by the Boston Society of Architects, and I also am very lucky to count Alex as a friend. Alex is a native of Peru, and he is apprenticed with Masters in Systems of Andean Shamanism in the Arts of Geomancy and Feng Shui and in Architecture. He is deeply engaged in his daily work in bringing shamanism practically and effectively into all facets of contemporary life through his work with space. Alex's work has been featured in many publications, and we are honored to have him join us here today. If you would like to reach Alex, you can um, see his website at alexstark.com. Well done, Alex. You did that even before we had search engine optimization. <laughs> Thank you. Very brilliant. And um, Alex, where would you like people to email you? They can go through the website. If they uh, access alexstark.com, there's a contact button that will put them directly into email. Excellent. Everybody's welcome. Excellent. And I'm not going to say anything more about Alex and his long journey because he's got um, vast amounts of work and resources on his website. And I want to encourage you all to go there. It's a gorgeous site. So just go to alexstark.com and poke around. You'll be lost in the site for the entire day, like always happens to me whenever I go there. Um, so we are live this week, live and in person. If you have questions about today's topic, you are welcome to call in at 512-772-1938, or you can Skype in from the co-creatornetwork.com site, or you're welcome to email me at Christina at lastmaskcenter.org, and I would be happy to read your question on the air. So Alex... We have mm-hmm. had this um, ongoing uh, sort of slowly rolling conversation here on this show about working with spirits of the land, uh, working in space, basically, particularly the space around you. And it appears that there are some practitioners and teachers who feel that the energies around us are fundamentally problematic and they are either to be avoided or depossessed. There are others who will call on the energies of whatever foreign country they learn shamanism in, but they will ignore entirely the spirits of the land that they are physically standing on when they come home back to the U.S. And then there are others like myself who just talk to the spirits all the time <laughs> and, and really believe that we need to develop a relationship with the spirits of the land, with elementals, with the great spirits of the land, and we need to pay attention to what's right here. So overall... What is your perspective about working with the energies that are around us? Well, you know, it's curious because I grew up in a middle-class family in, uh, in Peru. And even though Peru obviously is well-known for its uh, shamanistic traditions, I didn't actually grow up in any of them because my parents were very busy trying to become, you know, quote-unquote modern. Uh, so they'd rather we learn English than the native language. And uh, we certainly weren't encouraged to uh, talk to spirits or even think of spirits for that matter. Nevertheless, uh, it was very clear growing up, though, that there were certain forces out there that were part of my life. And as a little kid, I remember going into our garden and, and, and connecting in my own you know, childish way to plants and trees and so on. Uh, it was only later that I, I, I became exposed to ways of thinking about this. In other words, intellectual or, or cosmo, cosmological ways of, of framing these conversations. But ultimately, after all these years of study, my, my fundamental conclusion is that uh, the spiritual world is inescapable. It's, it's not like it's a different world out there that you can connect to. It's, it's a world you live in. It's like being inside the, the soup that you're about to, uh, to eat. Um, 
there's no way to distance yourself or disconnect or even differentiate between the world of energy or spirit or 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 manifestation uh, at the invisible level and uh, the identity that you may have adopted as a professional or a Western person, you know, if you're living in a place like the United States. Um, for me, spirits are, are ubiquitous. They're, they're everywhere. It's only a matter of how we frame the discussion that makes this uh, difficult for some people. Now, when it comes to the issue whether they're positive or negative, uh, I think one of the clearest lessons that I learned from the, the Chinese approach to this is that there is neither positive nor negative. There's only a continuum of energy. So some energies are good for certain things, and some energies are not so good for those same things. So, for example, humans need certain types of places for, for their homes. Uh, and those places may not be suitable for other life forms. Um, a very common example uh, that's often talked about is in Africa, native people are encouraged, uh, or I'm sorry, are discouraged from building their homes anywhere where termites have built their nests. And the reason is that termites are attracted to a particular type of energy in the land that is actually harmful to humans. Hmm. So they know from that experience what to avoid, but that doesn't mean that Termites are bad. It just means that there's a distinction in terms of what's good for humans and what's not so good for humans. So that's one level of the discussion. Um, another level of the discussion has to do with the psychology of, of our understanding of spiritual life. Uh, and I think it's very, very, um, it's a little bit sad and, and quite common that people think of the spiritual world as somehow um, negative or harmful, uh, when the fact of the matter is that any energy out there can be made negative by your own psychological attitude. Uh, people, you know, this is very common, you know, if you look at movies, people think of, uh, you know, zombies as a negative thing, but the fact is that the spirit, spirit of all dead people, in other words, of all our ancestors, can be hugely beneficial if you know how to interact with it and if you know what attitude to have in front of it. Sorry, so I thought from, you were continuing. <laughs> I'm, just trying, I'm trying to think, this is such a vast question. It's a very good question. Yeah. Um, so to me, connecting to, to the invisible realm is, first of all, it's what I do for a living. Because when I walk into a space and I apply principles, whether they are Chinese or Native American or African or for wherever these principles may have been uh, uh, created, you are, ta- you are looking at the invisible realm. You know, it's stuff that is not necessarily connected to, to material uh, reality, uh, but it's present in the material reality. So, so the, the, the beauty of, of all of these systems is that they, they look at physical reality, a house, a door, a window. They look at the compass orientation of a place, but they see other dimensions. Uh, they, they, <clears throat> they're able to extrapolate meaning out of ordinary physical uh, stuff that allows us to be able to, to improve our lives. And that's fundamentally what geomancy is about. Um, you look at any given situation and you try to find meaning in it. What does it mean that this person is here? Why are they here? Does this fulfill their particular journey in life? Is their soul connected to where they're living and how they're living? And if it's not, how can it be reconnected? How can you realign that person to uh, a higher level of relationship, not only with, with their space, but with themselves? And of course, the reason that's possible is because the space and the, and the people are one. They're indistinguishable from the space. So that's kind of, in a thumbnail, the way we look at things. So Alex, well, as long as we're at these sort of big questions, why don't we cover a couple others um, for some listeners who may be very new to all of these ideas. So let's talk about, so kind of like, so what is geomancy and then what is feng shui? I think most people, listeners would get what is architecture and 
they're trying to get what is shamanism. But let's let's do geomancy and then feng shui just to sure. give sure, listeners sure. a sense. Well, geomancy, the word geomancy uh, has two roots. Geo, meaning earth, of course, and mantea, which is a word that roughly can be translated as divination or learning or uncovering the truth. So it's about finding layers of meaning inside of the earth and everything that's physical on the earth. Um, and it's a generic term. Uh, it's often used very specifically to describe only certain traditions around the planet, typically the traditions of uh, the Middle East that relied heavily on, on numerology and numbers and, 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 and ways of calculating through numbers. But in, in a general sense, geomancy was developed by all cultures on the planet, and it was simply the way in which they understood the relationship to, to the earth in the first place and physical reality in a larger sense. And feng shui is simply an offshoot of that. It was developed in China. Uh, but in Japan, it's also known as part of the Shinto religion. India has its own variant. It's known as the Vastu system. Uh, in, uh, of course, Native American cosmology, there's the medicine wheel and so on. So all traditions look at the f- external reality out there and they try to find meaning in it in relation to who we are as, as, as people, as, as humans, and as spiritual beings. So that's kind of the... The overview. Um, what's really interesting lately, in the last you know few decades, in the last generation for sure, is that we are become, uh, we are beginning to recover some of that old knowledge uh, because it was associated with sorcery and witchcraft and so on. Uh, geomancy was persecuted in most countries uh, around the planet, uh, and in in for example in. Um, in, uh, in Scandinavia, uh, geomancers and, and, and shamans who did geomancy were, were killed. Um, and the same thing is true um, in a lot of countries. But because of our, our new, a renewed interest in the spiritual, a renewed interest in our relationship to land and earth and sustainability in particular, uh, I think there's been a, a new interest in how this works. And, and, and we're starting to combine traditions that were culturally, of course, um, Different, you know. Today, for example, and most feng shui consultants who go to feng shui school uh, study not just Chinese feng shui, but they're also asked to understand something about the particular geomantic tradition of the location where they are happen to live or study. So, in the United States, uh, most feng shui schools will teach them a little bit about Native American um, medicine wheel and Native American cosmology. They'll also have to study a little bit about Vastu or the Indian system, simply because we're connected to yoga and, and the Eastern philosophies. Uh, and teachers want to make sure they don't get confused with the Chinese philosophies. Uh, and in Europe, of course, most culture consultants are, are also experts in European geomancy, which survived the uh, persecutions after the Middle Ages and are very, very much alive and, and professionally uh, viable today. So it's been a very interesting journey for me to watch over the past couple of decades. So, um, was there something in particular as you were being, uh, you know, a good, good kid and going off to acupuncture school, I mean, uh, off to architecture school that, that drew you into this kind of this exploration of the invisible part of architecture? You know, that's, that's a great question because I had an awful time in architecture school. Uh, I just couldn't connect to the way they were looking at things and, you know, and I was fairly young, so I didn't quite know why that was. But at the same time that I was studying architecture, there was a, a small subset of students and teachers who were also studying things like um, how n- tr- non, uh, traditional peoples who don't have architects build buildings. Uh, uh, there was a huge movement to understand what was known at that time as architecture without architects. Um, and as part of that, of course, 
uh, we had to look at how how tribal societies build cities and and settlements and homes. And the moment you start looking at that, you you necessarily have to uh, understand why they would put a shrine in every house and why they had uh, priests that uh, took care of the houses and how they would never build a house without a ritual. And like I said before, how you would never build on a termite mound and and, and so on and so forth. So that was the beginning of my interest. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to move into um, a, a house in Brooklyn, in New York City, and the house turned out to have a ghost. Uh, and I had never believed in ghosts or even considered them to be viable or feasible <laughs> experiences. But there we were, my wife and I, uh, living in this house with a ghost in our living room. And uh, we needed to do something to sort this out. And we had no real connections to churches, so we didn't have a rabbi or a priest to go to. Uh, and a friend of ours said, well, why don't, you, um, why don't you do a little feng shui? And we had no idea what that was. We thought it was Chinese food. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> we were lucky enough to find uh, a gentleman who was actually Cuban who did feng shui. Uh, in those days, the Chinese feng shui consultants did not interact with uh, Caucasians or Westerners. Uh, it was strictly for the f- Chinese families in Chinatown in New York City. But we got lucky, and this gentleman came in and, and looked at the house and said, yes, you, you have a ghost. But... The way he explained the problem, he didn't use actually spiritual language at all. He used architectural language. He talked about the beam and look how the the door lines up with the window and this is encouraging this kind of thing. And and being an architect, I was hooked. So I studied with this guy for a little while and uh, moved on to other other studies and was able to recapture that interest that I had when I was in grad school on the vernacular, on, on, on traditional architecture and tribal architecture. Uh, and was luckily able to find clients uh, and be able to combine my practice as an architect with the geomancy that I was learning. So it was a very lucky break at that time. Today, of course, it's, you, you, know, you can go on the internet and find a feng shui school near where you are. In mm-hmm. those days, it was a whole other story. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about these spirits here, this sort of energy of space and land and earth and that kind of elemental energy. So what are the basics of why we should bother? Like what, what, what do we enhance in our life if we start to pay attention in that realm? Well, you know, uh, feng shui says it best, I think. They, they use the concept of good luck uh, as, a, um, as a hook for why somebody should do feng shui. So it's not only about being virtuous and being spiritual, but it's also a way in which you encourage good luck. You encourage positive outcomes in your life. So having a relationship with the unseen dimensions of your home or, or your property or your garden is a good way in which you can uh, promote outcomes at many levels. So your prosperity, your career, your financial success, your reputation, the, the good luck for your family, your children's education, the uh, outcome of a particular business deal, uh, your health, uh, how you recuperate from an illness, how you deal with old age. Uh, and so on, can actually be enhanced through understanding how the spiritual dimension of the physical world impacts you. And that's the whole point of geomancy. Um, no geomancer, all geomancers are aware that there is a, you know, there are ordinary physical laws, you know, so the, the beam in your, in your porch fell down. Yeah, and it fell down because it was uh, rotten or the ter- termites ate it. You know? So there's an obvious physical law and gravity was part of it. But there's also an unwritten um, subtle dimension in which other reasons are at work. So perhaps it has to do with your disrespect to your ancestors or to the fact that you inherited 
a, a, an, a, an ancestral problem or a family issue that you are now being called to resolve on behalf of your family, on behalf of your descendants. Uh, or perhaps it's simply the, um, the kind of energy that ha happens to have moved into your neighborhood or your home or your community. Um, influences change in time. So all geomancy, all geomantic traditions have, have made a, a very careful study of time through astrological tools to determine what possible outcomes may befall a particular location, a home, a structure, an office, and so on. Uh, but the practical consideration is the foremost. Uh, nobody, would, you know, nobody would be involved, and I don't think any of these traditions would have survived the thousands and thousands of years that they have survived if there wasn't a practical dimension. So uh, to me, that's the most important thing. I use feng shui simply to keep my family safe, uh, to keep us prosperous, to keep us as happy as possible, to encourage you know, positive outcomes. So that's kind of one fundamental reason. The other one is that we have a reciprocal relationship with nature. And here's where sustainability kicks in. Because for me, sustainability works at different levels. And you know, right now in, in the United States, we're very concerned, thankfully, with, with uh, ecology, you know, with our, our respect for land, for the, the bio, the, the web of, of, of nature, the biosphere, and how we have to be respectful and maintain the integrity of it. You know, so that's a lovely idea, but it's not the only uh, thing of in sustainability. There's, there are whole other ways of looking at it. And traditional peoples have always talked about the reciprocity, the reciprocal nature we have, uh, re sorry, relationship we have with nature, that we have an obligation to, to understand that we benefit from the gifts of nature and that we have to constantly and continuously give back. So reciprocity and, and giving back and paying for what we get from nature is a fundamental component. So in feng shui, the way this manifests is through taking care of your home. And of course, there's lots and lots of ways to do that. And my website has all kinds of uh, suggestions on how that can be done. But you also can do it through ritual. So ritual behavior, rituals are the, um, they're the language with which we talk to the sacred, to the invisible realm, to the realm of spirit. And using rituals is a brilliant way in which you can keep that relationship alive, you can nurture it, and you can guide it towards desired outcomes. So in feng shui in particular, there are lots and lots of rituals that are used to promote all kinds of outcomes. And I strongly encourage people to, to, to learn these rituals uh, or to hire somebody to do them for them. Uh, there are blessing rituals that promote health in the land itself. So if you have a garden or you do agriculture, that's a brilliant way of doing it. Uh, there are rituals that promote um, love within the home, uh, rituals for prosperity, rituals for healing, and so on and so on. So, so those are two, two great ways in which everybody can do that. And I always recommend that people learn a couple. Like, like for example, a very simple thing you can do is to walk around your garden and feed it. Uh, give it some food. Uh, take, some, take some fertilizer and just scatter it in your, in your plants. Or if you don't have a garden, do it with your plants at home. And, and as you do this, talk to them. Uh, think of your home, think of your garden as actually being alive, being responsive, being interactive, being reciprocal to your feelings. Uh, and, you, and people that do this for a while start to realize that the house, the garden, the plant actually is listening to you. It's actually paying attention to you. And that as you show your love and appreciation for their existence, they will in fact give that energy back to you and promote success in your life and give you a, a different sense of relationship with your environment. I have a funny story about that, Alex, because I, as you know, I have sort of recently moved into this home and have been trying to take over the, the care of the garden. And there were these two bushes 
um, same plant, planted at the same time, but one of them was really failing. And I was really torn about what to do with this bush. And they're both flowering bushes. And, and it was just really failing. It was sickly. And I've been trying to work with it and talk to it and figure out what it needed. But it just wasn't working. And it just was getting worse and worse. And I was standing right over it and speaking to my husband. And I said, um, I just don't know what to do with this bush. It just seems so unhappy and so sickly. I think I just need to take it out and put something else here. The next morning, that damn bush bloomed. (laughs) (laughs) It put out one flower and that flower was probably three weeks ahead of all the other flowers on both bushes. It's really like saying, don't pull me out. (laughs) That's really funny. That's shamanic tough love, right? You better be good or else. You know, I, let me tell you another story. Of, uh, uh, a, a client had, um, was diagnosed with cancer, and uh, it was a very serious type, and uh, he had to go through experimental uh, drugs that um, hadn't been actually approved by the FDA. And um, he had to fly to Germany, and, um, and this was going on, and he was starting to recuperate when the city, of, this happened in New York City, and the, the city one day showed up in, in, in front of his house and planted a tree uh, on the sidewalk. And he thought, oh, how, how wonderful. You know, this is a beautiful metaphor for my recovery because this tree, you know, it's a young tree. It's going to grow. It symbolizes my, my regeneration uh, and so on. But there was something about this little tree that, that was kind of off because it, it was a scraggly little thing. And, um, and he couldn't quite understand why the city had planted this particular type of tree because it wasn't, it wasn't all that attractive. So anyway, so he calls up the, the parks department and investigates, figures out, that uh, it, it, he wanted to know what type of tree it was. So the, uh, the arborist uh, called him back and said, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting tree. It's called a metasequoia, and it was considered to be extinct. And um, there was one last surviving tree found deep in the, in the countryside in China, uh, and it was brought back uh, literally from the edge of extinction by a, um, a botanist. And now we use it in the state of New York because it's extremely resistant to pollution. It grows very well. It doesn't destroy the sidewalks. The root system goes down instead of out. There's all these wonderful things about the plant. So my client is ecstatic because, you know, here he is. He's recovering from cancer. This is a, a plant that's recovered from extinction. Uh, but then he notices in the botanical name of the plant, uh, he sees something else that strikes his, uh, his attention. He goes back to the drug that he's taking uh, in, in Germany to discover that the drug itself was derived from this very same plant. So not only is he getting healed by the extract from the species, but the species shows up at his front door. <laughs> so there are very interesting ways in which the, the, the natural world is constantly trying to send us messages, trying to constantly instruct us and guide us and protect us. And it behooves us to pay attention. In the case of this man, he discovered it the hard way. Uh, but nature's always there talking to you. Um, in, among traditional herbalists in Europe, it's, um, it's a common common um, principle that the plant that is going to heal the illness you happen to be suffering right now is in your garden right now. You should go out to your garden and find that plant that will heal you. And I've seen this happen. You know, when I used to go to England and get allergies, uh, my, my friends would go out to their garden and pull out the elderberry and mix it with a little bit of the honey of that, that honey, uh, um, you know, the, 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 the honeycomb in their garden. And guess what? In about five minutes, the allergy was gone. Are so there that's ways? That, you know, oh, spirits are local. You know, uh, spirits aren't out there somehow. They're, they're not some abstract dimension that you connect to 
in a different realm. You know, they're right here. They're, they're constantly surrounding you. It's one of the problems, I think, in, in solely journey-based shamanism is it does sort of cultivate this idea that we have to go over there to communicate yeah, with them and doesn't yes. really cultivate this understanding that the very so what i learned from journeying was how to develop a relationship with a non-embodied being but then the next step is then to bring that understanding of how to be in good relationship into everything correct and, and michael harner has a great story about that uh of course michael harner is uh, the dean of uh, shamanic studies in the united states um, professor of anthropology, and when he was uh, doing his apprenticeship in um, in Peru, uh, he was taken out to the jungle, and you know his um, his teachers would uh, talk to him about the spirit of the anaconda and of the you know of the of the jaguar, and he was completely thrilled. And then one day, his teacher said, "Well, today we're going to go visit some spirits that are much more powerful than the anaconda and the and the jaguar. Today we're going to study the spirit of the outboard motor." And of course, uh, Michael Hunter had, didn't know what to do with that. But the fact is that it doesn't matter what you focus on. There's always a spiritual dimension in that thing, whatever it is. So not only do animals have spiritual uh, counterparts, but physical objects like your couch has a spiritual counterpart. And in fact, non-entities have, physical, have spiritual counterparts. Like any word, for example, has a, has a spiritual counterpart. Um, those of you who are familiar with the work of Masaru Emoto, and his uh, crystallization of water, and he used to photograph uh, crystals of water after he had insulted them or yelled at them or praised them or, or blessed them, and the crystal actually was different. So the word itself, which is, an, which is a complete construct, it has no physical or, or, uh, you know, or, or, or there's no reality in a word. It just refers to something else. That also had a spiritual dimension that had an impact on the physical crystallization of water, and it could be photographed. So everything out there has a spiritual dimension. Uh, we, we talk about it in, in feng shui. We don't talk about spirits. We talk about vibrations or levels of energy. Uh, so at, at the vibrational level, uh, you can connect to anything. And it's easy to connect. Uh, you can go across uh, time. You can go across space. Uh, you can connect to the future. You can connect to the past. And in fact, when we do feng shui corrections, uh, we're, often in, we're often accessing dimensions that are neither in space nor time. And then we bring that information or that healing or that energy back into specific points in space or time and apply it. So we're manipulating the, the entire web of reality, both in, in physical terms as well as in time terms. So, they, so we access the space-time continuum in a kind of a radical way. So this, this is making me think of many much larger conversations about the actual power that we have if we would just be aware of what we're actually doing all the time anyway. Um, but where I'd like to go with this is so so you've talked a little bit about what we can do individually and individual um, actions like to talk to our garden and to feed our garden. Um, you know, to feed, that to make offerings to feed is one of the most basic steps to begin to initiate a relationship is to give. Mm-hmm. Anyway, well, you know the- the, the, the journey can be very simple. I mean, I, I would begin by giving your house a name, giving your car a name. Uh, like every object that I own uh, has a name. Like computer has a name. My cell phone has a name. My house has a name. You know, everything has a name. And I address them by their name um, in terms of a house uh, because it is, it is, a, it is a, an entity. Um, uh, you, it's, it, it, it's important to understand that it has an intelligence. 
uh, and that you can't talk down to it. You know, you can't be um, patronizing to your home. Uh, you have to allow it to talk to you too. So often a house, you know, you'll get a, like a, a water leak or, or um, something will happen to the house, the blinds won't work. Uh, those are all signals that the house is sending you that there's something that needs to be addressed. And you, of course, have to fix it at the ordinary physical level of, you know, getting the plumber in and getting the, you know, the handyman in. But you also have to ask yourself the question, why is this happening? And in feng shui, we look very carefully at this, you know, what sector of the house? Is that the wealth sector? Is that the career sector? Is that the love sector? You know, what's, what's going on here? Um, and try to find additional reasons, additional meaning into that. Uh, feeding your garden, feeding your house. Um, you can do it. You can do it so many ways, you know. And and all cultures have traditions for doing this. Uh, in many cultures, for example, the way to do it is when you sit down your table to dinner, you put another plate for that unseen person or that unseen presence that is your house or your home, and you put some food in there, uh, or you light a candle during the meal. And instead of thinking of it as romantic light, you think of it as a way to honor your home. So. Uh, I, I, I don't think that there is one tradition that's better than another because, you know, I'm, I'm half Peruvian, half Swiss. I live in the States. I've studied with Africans and Native Americans and so on. Uh, but I do believe that you have to do it. So whatever works for you. Uh, and you can choose the timing that you want. You can do it in the morning. You can do it at dinner. You can do it as you go to sleep. It doesn't actually matter as long as you start to believe and act that you're in a relationship with your space. This is actually one of the messages that we were given as we were coming upon the end of the old world, the beginning of the new world, is that in the, in the sort of new age idea of things, we'd really lost the understanding of the power of our actions and that we need to do things. We, we need to do these things intentionally. It's not enough to just visualize it or just, and you know, to you just know, it's, think it's, about it. I think it's also very important to understand that we are in love with space. Uh, it's very common in feng shui, for example, when, um, when a client can't sell uh, an apartment or a home. Uh, one of the one of the main reasons why somebody can't sell a home is that one of the one of the people that lives in the house is so in love with the house that it can't let go, mm. or that the house itself has fallen in love with the person and won't let go of that person because that person was nice to it or or took care of it or or brought it back from disrepair. Uh, and our job is to is to gently disconnect that love relationship. It's a very, it's a very, uh, I mean, we don't often talk about this in, the, in these terms to the client because it's very hard to, for most people to understand that, you know, your house could possibly love you and that you love your house the way you would love your spouse. But it's very, very common. And it has consequences. It has financial consequences. It has consequences to your health, to your reputation, to your career, to your education, and to the future of your children. Talk a little bit more about that particular one. How does it Which, how does uh, it affect your children? Oh, because see, um, if we in the West we tend to think of time as linear, but we know from you know just basic shamanism that time in, in a sense is circular. You know, we keep going back to the beginning over and over again. Uh, but in addition to that, there's also a, a dimension in which uh, time is not even a continuum. It's kind of like it's all there, present at the same time. So you're living both in the, in the present as well as the past and the future. So whatever you do today is going to impact not only your children, but also your ancestors. So one of the reasons why in traditional societies people are so respectful to the ancestors is not just because of the positive impact that your ancestors can have on you, it's because you can retroactively harm your ancestors by being disrespectful or negligent of their memory. So time can actually work, you know, instead of going forward, it can actually move backwards. 
So when it comes to children, it's very common. You hear these stories in China all the time that uh, some family found fortune when they were living in this little tenement and they started a little business and it grew and all of a sudden they're very wealthy. They never, ever, ever get rid of that little tenement or that little office where they started because it is at that place and in that connection, in that nexus in which they connect to the physical world and the physical world and the spiritual world merge that the good luck of the family was generated. So there's enormous respect for that specific location. And as long as the family holds on to that house, well, fortune continues to befall them. And what's interesting about, about children in particular is that whatever you do in your house has an, uh, 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 an outcome uh, and, a potential, and potential consequences to your children, even though they may not actually live with you. They could be in Europe or traveling overseas. But whatever you do in your life, whatever thought patterns you engage in, whatever behavior you have, is going to impact them. Uh, and this, by the way, is part of the Western tradition. One of the famous lines from uh, Julius Caesar, uh, one of my favorite lines from Julius Caesar, is that he said that the sins of the parents will be cast upon their children. In other words, you inherit your parents' behavior. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you inherited the consequences of what they do. And, and therefore, whatever we do is going to impact and be inherited by our children. And that includes, of course, what we do with our homes. That's why... That's why traditions have invented things like baptisms and uh, um, confirmations and initiations. It's the way in which the elders, through their behavior, promote the successful outcome of their offspring and of their descendants. That's why we do it. It isn't just pretty. It has practical, real-life consequences. So Alex, speaking of practical real life consequences, let's talk, let's shift a little bit and talk about how we can scale these principles up. So, so how could we begin to engage in um, kind of healing or prosperity or, or this kind of transformation at a collective level or at an organizational or institutional level? How do we scale this up? Okay. It's, um, to me, it's very simple. Um, you have to begin at home. Uh, what, one of the interesting things about traditional societies, particularly in Africa, it's very, very clear in Africa, in any village, there are many levels of, of shamanic practice. So in a home, the head of the household on the male side is responsible for the male rituals that promote success for the male component, whether that's the hunt or whatever. And the female head of the household is, is responsible for the female component, whether that's childbirth or the health of the children, right? Then the clan leader is responsible for the rituals that promote the success of the clan. And then the tribal leader is supposed to take care of the rituals that promote success for the tribe. And it goes on and on in terms of level of responsibility. But it begins in the house. So the best thing you can do to start to help uh, save the world is to take care of your house. Uh, keep it clean. Uh, be respectful to it. Keep it in good repair. Do the best you can to be neighborly. And then, of course, do things we've already talked about, like, like feed your garden, like uh, sit at the dinner table and talk to your house or honor it some way. Um, one very effective way that I always teach my clients is to set up an altar. Uh, and I, I don't see altars as religious things. I see them as energy engines, like a little thing that promotes success, like a little engine that keeps whirling in the background. Uh, and as long as an altar represents the four basic components of the cosmos, earth, water, wind, and fire, it will work. So earth can be represented with a stone or a rock or a crystal. Uh, water can be, you know, a glass of water or a seashell. 
And fire and air can be represented by a candle or incense because it takes both, of course, to burn. So as long as you have those three objects on your altar, you can start to work. The second thing you do with an altar is you invoke energy, you invoke power. You can talk to your ancestors, you can talk to the Virgin Mary if you're Catholic, you can call in on, on, on Abraham if you're Jewish. Uh, I don't care what you do, it just invokes something bigger than you. Maybe your ancestors, or maybe that great aunt that you loved, or maybe it's just a mountain that you've been hiking that you love. Call it in, address it by name, say, you know, oh, that, you know, oh, Columbia River, I love you, so I, lo I love going and fishing on the Columbia River, come in. Or maybe something much simpler than that, you know, I love, I love art. So maybe it's the beauty of, of art or of flowers. Just, you just invoke it. And then you light your candle, and then you spend a few minutes there. And through that behavior, now this is behavior, right? It's something you're actually doing in your life. Through that behavior, you automatically connect to the spiritual dimension of reality. It doesn't have to be shamanistic. It doesn't have to be religious. It can, of course, if you want it to be. But now you've made the connection. And if you do this consistently over time in your home, you will start to increase the quality and the quantity of energy in your physical field. This is a very important concept. Most people do not have enough energy in their physical body to impact reality in any significant way. The more we get addicted to, to cell phones and television and, you know, and, and, and that, those types of behaviors, the, the more poorly we eat, the less we exercise, the less we spend time in nature, our energy starts to, our body starts to lose energy. We, we, we lose energy. We don't have enough energy to actually be effective in the world. I, I call that power. You know, that's your power is how much energy you've got. So start at home and build up the energy. Of course, shamanic journeying, shamanic practices are designed to increase the energy levels in your physical body and your auric system. So that's where you begin. That the moment that you have accumulated enough energy to be of use to your neighborhood, the responsibility will appear. So maybe you join the community board or uh, the, the co-op board of your building if you live in an apartment building, right? And you keep building up that energy. And if you're responsible and if you pay respect to your ancestors and you keep doing that work at home, you never stop doing the work of, of home, all of a sudden you have enough energy to be uh, of, of use to your, to your town, let's say. And all of a sudden now you can start to run for, for councilman and so on. So it's a very simple you know, schema, but it requires that you begin at the beginning, that you begin at home. So let's talk then, um, sorry, my brain is going in so many directions at once, I can't even make a sentence. Um, th there's just so many ways I see what you've just said apparent around me, even in at workshops when people don't tend the space because it's nobody's home, right? Where it's, but it's, we have to make it our home when we're there at the workshop or we're never going to gather enough energy to make anything useful happen. Well, let me give an example here. I'm, I'm half Swiss. So to me, Switzerland is a very interesting country. I never lived there. I was born in Peru, but uh, everybody knows that the Swiss are one of the most successful societies on the planet. They, they have, a, they have the, the, probably the best standing army in the world, yet they haven't been in a war in many, many generations, right? So it's a peaceful people, but very powerful. Uh, they have probably the, one of the richest economies on the planet uh, and certainly one of the highest uh, uh, standards of, of, of living anywhere, right? And one thing that you notice the moment you step foot in Switzerland is that there are no trash cans on the streets. None. Zero. Yet the streets are, you could eat off the sidewalk. And the reason is that everybody has collectively taken on the responsibility of taking care of their environment. Uh, I have a cousin that lives on a, on a cute little town on the edge of a forest. And he took me to, for a walk in the forest uh, one day. And, we were, you know, it's a beautiful place. And we kind of stumbled on this beautiful uh, lodge. 
And he tells me it's a communal lodge that you can, you can share it for free for weddings and birthday parties and so on. I said, really, that's interesting. Um, so it's free. He says, yes, yes. But of course, in exchange, I have to take care of these trees. And he points to a grove. And I said, but I, I thought this was, this, was the, this was communal land. He says, yes, it's communal land. But everybody in the town, in the village, has been assigned a specific tree. And, and these are my, I don't know, dozen, two dozen trees that I am actually responsible for. So if something happens to these trees, I am personally liable, not just for the fixing, but legally liable for their well-being. Now, can you imagine doing that in a, in a state park in this country or, an, or a national forest where, where individuals from the village built, you know, downstream were actually having to respond legally for the well-being of their, of their environment? So clearly there's something about the covenant that humans can draw with nature and the care and love and concern that you have to show for nature and for the physical web. For their, and of course, in, their, in, their, in this case of the streets, it's their streets, it's their sidewalk. They, they have to keep them clean, right? And then all of a sudden, what happens is you, you start to derive practical success from that. And of course, Switzerland's not perfect, but it's a good example of how this can be managed. Another thing that's interesting about Switzerland is they still remember the, uh, the elves and the trolls. And the, you know, if you talk to any Swiss person, particularly the ones that live in the mountains, uh, elves and trolls and fairies are part of their daily life. You know, when they cross a river, they, they gesture to the river because they know that there's a, you know, there's a delphine in that river. There's a spirit of the river that you have to say hello to. Uh, when when uh, surveyors survey um, the land for tunnel cutting or road building, uh, they actually do rituals in Switzerland. And it's commonplace that builders, when, they, when the, in the structure of the house has been you know, built, uh, before they clad the house with boards or whatever they're going to clad it with, they, 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 they cut a little sapling tree and they tie it to the top of the house as a way of telling the trees from which the, wood, the lumber of the house came from that they thank the natural world for having provided the lumber for the house. I mean, this happens every day in Switzerland. So it's part of their common understanding of the reciprocal relationship they have to nature. That's a sustainable way of dealing with life. And it leads to practical success. Well, and I, I appreciate you using Switzerland as an example because there is a, 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 well, because it's a contemporary Western culture and most people go, well, yeah, I do it that way when I'm in Peru, but I can't imagine bringing that home. And we have to start to imagine bringing it home. <laughs> we don't have well, yes, choice. of course, and of course. And you know, you know, it's, it, it, people misunderstand uh, history and they, uh, I, th- I think there's a romantic attitude um, I find this very troublesome and worrisome. Uh, I find most people who are interested in the spiritual, um, or a fair number of people that are interested in the spiritual dimension of things, they tend to romanticize um, traditional cultures, tribal cultures, and so on. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, in, in, in the United States, for example, if you just bother to research the history of San Francisco Bay, um, you know, or, or of the ecological movement, the green movement, uh, there's been a very strong spiritual dimension to that effort. Uh, the, the reason this country still has state parks and you can go and enjoy them uh, free of charge in most cases uh, today is because there was there was a dimension of uh, of reality in our society that was very respectful to nature. We have to thank uh, you know people like uh, John Muir and and many of the ecologists, the early ecologists, who understood that you know you you had to be in a in a reciprocal relationship with nature that you had to take care of it and preserve it and protect it. Uh, and of course, t- today, that movement has taken all, all kinds of other dimensions. It's no longer confrontational the way it used to be uh, uh, in recent times. Uh, but, but it's not that far from us either. You know, all we have to do is keep doing it. Um, there's many, many cities that are uh, deeply engaged in that effort, uh, protecting uh, 
the, the, you know, the remaining natural environment, uh, limiting growth, uh, improving uh, the quality of water, improving the quality of, of, of the physical realm. Um, cities like, uh, like for example, um, uh, Los Angeles, I happen to live in Los Angeles now, the uh, Long Beach um, Harbor here is, uh, is not only the largest uh, harbor in the country, it's also the greenest harbor in the country. Uh, because people have been, you know, paying attention. So even within the, the restrictions of heavily mechanized, heavily um, capitalistic activity, it is possible to, to, to show some conscience and, and, to, and to improve what's happening out there. I don't see well, a disconnect. It, remember, I, I remember that function concept, nothing's neither good nor bad. It's just a continuum. You know, you can, you can try to play with it. And I don't think we have a choice, frankly, because, because you know, we've, we've come this far. And what are we going to do? Undo all of all of technology? Undo all of capitalism? I, I don't see that as a viable way to work in the short term. Certainly, so we have to make it work. But you have but to it, start at home. You, you have yeah, to start right it, for you. And it seems that what you've said is that we, this isn't just about consciousness or 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 virtue. That this is really about the practicality that our understanding of our reciprocity with things and our action, our behavior in that regard is what cultivates the prosperity. And so the sustainability that is necessary, we have to participate in that. Yes. And, you know, and virtue is the wrong word because there, there isn't a virtue in doing what you should do anyway. Correct. It's, it's, it's an obligation. It's a responsibility. It's part of who you are. Uh, you know, you, you cannot escape it, in other words. And, you know, and there's a whole other dimension to this that I, I, I should bring up, which is the whole male-female thing. Um, you know, we know historically, of course, that the, the male component, the male consciousness uh, took over, um, particularly at the political and economic level, a long time ago, 5,000 to 10,000 years ago, and has been gradually gaining more and more power. Um, and as a consequence, uh, a lot of the feminine aspects of reality have been subdued or even um, repressed, uh, oppressed. Um, and it's very difficult today to even see that there is a whole other consciousness possible in a relationship to things. Uh, you know, I, th- th- to me, this is very curious because when you, when you hear about shamanism in particular, uh, you read the literature and you watch the TV programs and all that stuff in the videos, what you're looking at typically is male shamanism. It's the male version of it. Um, and the reason is because the, the male shamans, you know, the dudes are out there boasting about it and, and they have no problem, you know, intellectualizing it, which is a, which is a masculine approach to it. Uh, and the rituals are very prescribed and kind of like there's, a, there's rules, all kinds of rules and you know, becomes kind of almost fundamentalist in its own shamanistic way. Um, what you never hear about is what happens in the kitchen of the curandera, of the female shaman, uh, because she's not out there boasting and bragging and, you know, putting on the feathers. Uh, she's dealing with the kids and, and, and gathering with the women, and they do it quietly. And it's that kind of, um, uh, you know, it's the whole journey into the, into the earth, the whole Inanna, you know, Persephone, you know, level of reality that, has to be recovered. Uh, and, and, and the problem, of course, is that it's neither flashy nor, nor seductive. Uh, but there's, there's a strength in there that can also be, can also be explored. Uh, and I think not, not only the women have to do it, clearly, it's their realm, uh, and I really can't speak to how they should do it, but the men have to do it too. You know, I'm very lucky that I live in a, in a, in a female household. You know, I have a wife, a daughter. Uh, for many, many years, I had a, a mother-in-law, my mother, my sister, uh, there weren't a lot of males in my life, even growing up. So thankfully, uh, I was able to be connected to that level. And I think it's one of the reasons why I ended up, you know, becoming what I am today. 
because uh, there was enough training there, so to speak. You know, I was around it enough uh, that I could see it when it is, was in front of me. But if you spend a lot of time watching TV or, or paying attention to the media or reading the kind of, you know, the common magazines, you very, very seldom come in touch with. Even in the so-called ecological world or the uh, spiritual world, you know, there's, a, there's an enormous absence of female leaders in the spiritual uh, professions and so on. I mean, these are problems that I'm sure you've discussed with, your, with other guests. Well, I find that for me, the, the piece that I've had to bring in to the, to the shamanism, partly because of the romanticizing of things, but also just the, the sort of deaf, deafness and blindness we have just as Westerners that, you know, we kind of can't help ourselves in that ignorance, is, is this really a Taoistic idea about the yin and the yang and the continuum and the complementary dualism of those energies and understanding that either energy left to its own devices leads to a particular kind of extinction. Absolutely. And that yeah. sustainability. You know, um, I'm sorry to interject you, but in, in feng shui, there's a very interesting principle that, um, that says that if, if, you, if, if, if there's too much yang energy or yin energy for too long a period of time, what happens is not, not only that it, dis, it, it degenerates, but it collapses. Mm-hmm. So you get these funny events where you know, you get yang, yang, yang. So let's take the World Trade Center, for example, you know, you know enormous structure, phallic in shape, um, a symbol of, of capitalist might, uh, right? Money, 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 growth, growth, growth. And all of a sudden, what, what happens in terms of the energy of that thing is that it collapses into from full yang or very high yang into full yin or very high yin. And of course, full yin is death. Mm. So you run the risk, this whole idea of, of economies that have to continuously grow, you know, the whole GDP thing. Uh, that paradigm that economies must grow, that they must increase productivity, they must increase output, they must increase gain or, or return for the dollar, right? That whole yang mentality has to at some point collapse. And, and so that's a very dangerous to, proposition. Talk to us how that's different from prosperity, because the prosperity you've been talking about has really got this sustainable, circular, rejuvenating quality to it, and it's very different than this... Um, example you were just sharing. Yeah, see, from, from the function perspective, prosperity is having enough to live a comfortable life. And of course, um, because feng shui is a holistic practice, it not only looks at your prosperity and comfort, but that of the entire collective. So it's really about sharing things so that everybody has enough and adjusting if that's not the case. Right? So it's not about you know, it, I, I, this, there's a very common misunderstanding, particularly in the media, that, you know, that you can use feng shui to become rich uh, or maximize profit. Uh, and sure, you can use it. I mean, there's tools there for that. But that's not the point of the practice. The point of the practice is to create harmony and balance and to optimize whatever you're doing. So when, when I'm hired by a client, one of the first things I explain to you, particularly the corporate clients, I explain to them, look, you know, you're paying my bills, so you're, you're my client. But I have two other clients I have to respond to. You know, one, the second client is nature itself. I cannot do anything that will harm nature. So if, that mean, if making more money for you means that you're going to harm the, 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 the biosphere, then there's a contradiction that I need to resolve if I'm going to accept this job. And the third client is, is society, is the collective. It's all of the stakeholders that are going to be impacted by whatever the hell you're doing. And again, if there's something that you're doing that's going to harm a particular aspect of that reality, then I have to find a way to rebalance it. Um, and I can give you a very interesting example of how this plays out, uh, if we have the time. Uh, I was hired 
by a real estate developer in Mexico to do a, a uh, tourist kind of resort development project, very large one on the West Coast, uh, just uh, near Puerto Vallarta. Uh, and there were many, many complicated problems connected to this in terms of purchasing land and so on, and many stakeholders, because there was a lot of people that were going to be impacted by this, obviously. And I took the job uh, partly because I knew that the, uh, the, the, the owners of this company were very spiritual people and they, they wanted to do the right thing, but also because something about the land spoke to me. And the land kind of said, listen, you better take this job no matter what the consequences. So I, I agreed to do the job. And for a couple of years, all we did work on floor plans and master plans for a traditional tourist development with a marina and golf courses. And, and my heart keeps, you know, kept sinking because, you know, this is not what I think is sustainable development. And we know from, you know, from ecological perspective that, you know, golf courses are very damaging. Marinas are terribly damaging to the marine ecosystems and so on. But I knew that the land had called me in and I had to do this. So I just kept plodding along. And what I was doing while I was looking at these master plans and floor plans was I was going on the land a lot and doing lots of rituals. And at every ritual, I would make prayers, asking the land to please guide this process so that we would be able to not only give the developer a return for his dollar, right? So they could make money because that's what they're, what they're in business for and that's why we're here. But also make sure that the, 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 the good interests of the land and of the community are also served. And so what happens? We hit 2008, the economy collapses, uh, the tourism development is dead, and now these people are holding a huge amount of money and a huge chunk of land. So back to the drawing board, they start hiring different consultants, and as part of the process, all of a sudden now, we're no longer developing a tourist resort with marina and golf club, we're now developing a sustainable agricultural development with fisheries, a village, and some real estate development, most likely for Mexicans rather than foreign tourists. So the entire project was flipped. It, it became not only more interesting, but certainly more sustainable. And in a way that's going to benefit the community that's there. And as, a, as part of the process, of course, the ecologists were hired to kind of reclaim uh, land that had been degraded by prior agricultural activity and so on and so on. So to me, this was like a very good example. Aha, if you just stick to your guns and you, 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 you follow the behavior that says that you have to be truthful to, to, your, to the land, to the community, to the, to the spirit realm, they will take care of the process. They Alex, will make sure thank you. That this becomes real. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today, but also, Alex, thank you so much for doing the work that you're doing in the world. So everyone, if you want to um, contact Alex, you can go through his website, alexstark.com, and just go through the contact there to connect with him. Um, we are so grateful for you being with us here today. We give thanks to the spirits of the land, the spirits of the earth itself, the sky above, to the ancestors that gather round, and to the heart that unites us all. Thank you, everyone. Have a great week. <laughs>